What's going on, guys? Welcome back to The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes. Sorry for not getting this out to you earlier in the week. I've had quite an interesting week, but the games that I was going to preview, I will now review. So let's get it. All right, we've got a lot of stats to cover in this episode, so let's start with the top topics. First off, the Mavericks. They started their homestand with three straight wins, somehow lost to Memphis without Ja Morant. But then they picked up a great win against a hard-nosed defensive team in the New York Knicks and former Mav Jalen Brunson. For the Pelicans, they learned a lesson from their Clippers game and then applied it against the Kings and the Warriors. They finished their road trip in Denver, and then two games in Dallas. The Thunder started their road trip a little slow, losing their first two games, but they rebounded in Washington and Miami. We're going to take a look at an issue that they have with their second chance points, as well as look into the game between Chet Holmgren and Jaime Hawkes Jr., two of the most prolific rookies in this class. All right, let's start with the Mavs. In their first three games between January 3rd and January 7th, The Mavs' offensive rating in those games was 123.4. That's fifth in the NBA. Their defensive rating in their first three games of the homestand was 100, which was second in the NBA. So their their net rating was 23.4 in those first three games. And across that span, that was first in the NBA. There were only four teams with zero losses. Three of those four teams each had three wins. All four of those teams were top four in defensive rating and net rating, and they were Dallas, Boston, Cleveland, and New York. The next closest team had a 9.5 net rating. The, the, the top four that I had mentioned, their net ratings were at least 20. Dallas's pace in those three games was 102.67, which was ninth fastest in the NBA, and their player impact estimate was 62.9. That was first in the NBA in that span. So their PI or PIE this season ranges between 43.4 and 55.2 across the entire NBA across the whole season. Dallas's PIE or PI this season was 50, which is 18th in the NBA. So for them to be first at 62.9, it's a spike, but it's a spike that we want to see from the maps. So let's look at that second game against the Trailblazers since we had already talked about the first game in the last episode. In the first half, Portland outshot Dallas 10 of 12 to 3 of 6 in free throws. So Portland was getting to the line a lot more. But Dallas outscored Portland in the paint 30 to 16. And somehow Dallas gave up 10 turnovers. A little odd because they're the best in the league at hanging on to the ball. In the third quarter, Dallas turned it around. They shot 17 of 28, 60.7% from the floor, 12 of 15, 80% from two. 20 paint points in the third quarter. 5 of 13, 38.5% from three, so they shot well from outside. And they assisted the ball 10 times in one quarter. That would put them on pace for 40 if they did that for every quarter. They only had one turnover, right? So that juxtaposition of the 10 turnovers in the first half to only one in the third quarter. This is where they really broke the game away because it was still close enough for Portland to make a run after the first half, 
Dallas slammed the door in the third quarter. And then, on top of that, Dallas had five steals. Portland, on the other hand, in this quarter, had six of 21, which was 28.6% from the floor. Four of seven from two. They only attempted seven shots from two. 57.1%. From three, they shot two of 14. That's 14.3%. That's not good. I don't think that's good. They also had seven turnovers and allowed seven points off of those turnovers. By the end of the game, Dallas shot 56 of 96, 58.3% from the floor. The breakdown from two and from three, from two, it was 39 of 58, which is 67.2%. 17 of 38 from three, which was 44.7%. Fantastic shooting all across the board. 35 assists. 64 bench points, 64 paint points, 36 fast break points, and they out-rebounded Portland 52-42. to So that game was over in the third, and we can just shut the door on that game because uh, that's kind of how it should have been the whole game. But they eventually got there in the third. Now, the next game, the Minnesota, Timber- the Minnesota Timberwolves, excuse me, this was much closer. The box score did not favor the Mavs in this game. It was kind of balanced. However, one of the tips that I had mentioned last week was if you can get Carl Anthony Towns or Rudy Gobert into foul trouble, you're going to give yourself a chance. Well, they did that and then some. Dallas put Carl Anthony Towns and Rudy Gobert in foul trouble. Cat played only 27 minutes and 26 seconds due to having five fouls across the game, which is low for a starter. On top of that, this game went into clutch time, and this is really where the Mavs shined, as they have for a majority of the season. They outscored the Timberwolves 11-5 in the clutch, out-rebounded the Wolves 7-4, and among those rebounds, the Mavs had two offensive rebounds, while the Wolves had none, despite their size. The shooting splits, Dallas shot 3-8 of from the floor in the clutch, 37.5%, while holding Minnesota to 2 for 7, 28.6%. From 3, Dallas shot 2 for 5, 40%. Minnesota, 0 for 5. Yes, 0 for 5. 0%. Dallas also shot 3 of 3 from the free throw line. Minnesota, 1 for 1 from the free throw line. And then Dallas won the player turnover battle 2 to 3. Kyrie Irving led all players in the clutch with 6 points. We know he's the king of the fourth quarter. He was... I believe he led the league in fourth quarter scoring last year with about nine, somewhere between nine and 10 points in that quarter. So in this game, he led the way six points in the clutch. So in the last five minutes of the game, and then he shot two of two from three, grabbed an offensive rebound and a steal. There was a stretch where Kyrie was averaging eight and a half rebounds a game over four games. So it, it's it's not surprising that he got an offensive rebound in this clutch situation, but it's surprising that Kyrie can consistently get that many rebounds in a in a stretch of games. Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards combined for only five points in clutch time. So Kyrie outscored the both of them in the clutch. All right, now I've knocked on the Mavs with their free throw shooting all of last year, majority of this season. They're still not where they need to be in free throw shooting. They only shoot 75.1% from the free throw line. 
and that's 28th in the NBA. However, when the game is on the line and it's clutch time, by the end of this game, they shot 96.4% from the free throw line. That's first in the NBA. It's actually risen because they were in a clutch game against the Knicks and they didn't miss a free throw in the clutch. Luka in the clutch has shot nine of nine from the free throw line this season. Kyrie, eight of eight. The rest of the team, 27 of 28 from the free throw line. The only miss was by Josh Green on October 27th versus the Brooklyn Nets, which was also a win. So that miss didn't even matter. The Mavs are locked in from the free throw line in the clutch. And so this is a team that if you have to play the Mavericks, you don't want you don't want to keep them close, especially when they're healthy because they can beat you in more ways than one, especially in the spot where they're weakest throughout the rest of the game. So with that win, that gave the Mavs a 12-5 and clutch record this season. I'm going to break down the significance of their clutch record after I break down the Knicks game. But first, we got to check out what happened against the Grizzlies. So there's no Ja Morant out for the season with a right labrum tear in his shoulder. And there's no Jaron Jackson Jr. in this game. So with the firepower that the Mavs have, you expect the Grizzlies to fold somewhat. I mean, they are hard-nosed. They are tough. So it's not going to be an easy out. But you expect the Mavs to overcome the shortcomings that Memphis has. But in this game, the Grizzlies kind of ran the Mavs off the three-point line, and the spacing felt a little off watching the game. In the stats, it showed because Dallas only had 27 three-point attempts and a 32.9% three-point rate. Both of those were season lows. Now, I've talked about the Mavs bringing down their three-point rate, but that's not as low as it should be. It should be much higher than 32.9%. That's like Chicago Bulls numbers. The effort also really did not match Memphis. Memphis attempted nine more field goals despite having a negative four turnover margin. They had one less two attempts, right? One less two-point field goal attempts. They had 10 more three-point field goal attempts. So they, the scoring differences in this game, Memphis made 14 threes to Dallas's nine. So they generated 15 more points off threes. Memphis had 18 offensive rebounds to Dallas's eight. So they ended up having a 21 to eight advantage in second chance points in favor of Memphis. Kyrie and Luka combined for 64, while the rest of the team only had 39. The rest of the starters, besides Luka and Kyrie, had 15. On Memphis's side, Desmond Bain and Marcus Smart combined for 55 points. The rest of the team had 65. So... A surprising game, to say the least. But it's one of those games where you could say, okay, the Mavs can either sulk about that loss because they were supposed to win that game and then have it affect the rest of the homestand, or they can bounce back from it. And what did they do? They chose to bounce back from it. So against the Knicks, Jalen Brunson came back to Dallas and played in his first game as a Nick in the American Airlines Center since he missed December 27th, 2022 in Dallas. Remember, that game was Luka's 60.21 rebound, 10 assists, triple-double. The first ever 60.20 rebound, triple-double 
in NBA history. And that set a new franchise and career high in points with Lucas 60. The Mavs came back to tie that game with threes from Christian Wood and then Spencer Dinwiddie and then eventually Luca's outrageous free throw miss to a, a floater attempt and then eventually won the game in overtime. Now in this game, you would hope that Luca and Jalen Brunson would be able to battle it out at the American Airlines Center, but Luca did not play in this game. So the Mavs were shorthanded. However, they did have Kyrie. But we got to talk about the Knicks first because they had traded for OG Ananobi with the Raptors. They gave away RJ Barrett and Emmanuel quickly. They got back RJ Barrett, Malachi Flynn, Precious uh, Achua. And since OG Ananobi stepped on the floor for the Knicks on January 1st, he has had, as a player, he has had a 92.2 defensive rating entering this game against the Mavericks. That's first in the NBA among players with 20 or more minutes per game. The Knicks started 5-0 in January, and this was a five-game winning streak that they were riding into Dallas with. The other Knicks in the rotation that also had high defensive ratings from January 1st to January 9th, among players with 20 or more minutes per game. Isaiah Hartenstein, 94 defensive rating, second in the NBA behind OJ Ananobi. Jalen Brunson, 96.3 defensive rating, fifth in the NBA. Josh Hart, 97.2 defensive rating, sixth in the NBA. So the Knicks had four players in the top six in defensive rating since OJ Ananobi stepped on the floor for New York. He has single-handedly changed the way that this defense has efficiently stopped other, other teams from scoring. And then if we want to look at their efficiency on both sides of the floor, we can look at their net ratings among players with 20 minutes or more per game. Isaiah Hartenstein leads the way at 31.9. Then OG Ananobi is right behind him at 31.7. And then Jalen Brunson is third with 29.2. So you got... Three players from New York that are all top three in net rating in that span among players with 20 more minutes. That's who the Mavs had to deal with coming into town. The Knicks in this game will break down Jalen Brunson. He had 30 points on 10 of 22 shooting, 45.5%, and eight assists. OG Ananobi scored a low 10 points, but had two blocks and a plus 14 plus minus. He recorded the only two blocks for New York. I, I bring up the 14 plus minus because that was the best plus minus of any Nick on the floor, despite most of the guys having a, a negative plus minus. So OG Ananobi still made an impact on the floor considering that, that odd dichotomy of defense and offense for, for the Knicks. Isaiah Hartenstein had only eight points but recorded 15 rebounds. The Knicks had 45 total rebounds, and Hartenstein accounted for a third of them. Julius Randle, Plano native, had a team-high 32 points, 12 of 23 shooting from the floor, 52.2%. He is a Dallas native. When he comes here, for some reason, he just likes to go off. Not great for all of us Mavs fans, right? But um, it did not get the win this time. The Mavs in this game, Kyrie Irving 
had 44 points, 15 of 26 shooting, 57.7%, 6 of 10 from 3, 60%, and 10 assists and 2 steals. His 44 points were a game high, a season high, and a Mav high. That's the most points he scored as a Maverick since he was traded February of 2023. Tim Hardaway Jr. tied a season high 32 points on 10 of 20 shooting, 50%, 6 of 13 from 3, 46.2%, with 6 rebounds, 4 assists, and 2 steals. And then Josh Green tied his season high of 18 points, shot 8 of 12, 66.7% from the floor, and 2 of 4 from 3. Now in the miscellaneous categories, New York scored 56 points in the paint to Dallas's 40. Dallas's 7 and 10 this season when allowing 56 plus paint points. So it's I've said it I've said in the past paint defense is important. Of course, Derek Lively not being on the floor attributed to that. However, they got the win despite the points in the paint not favoring them. This is where they really Surprised me. Dallas had 25 fast break points to New York's six. Now, since Jalen Brunson had joined the Knicks, their pace hasn't been one of the fastest paces in the NBA. It's been kind of slow. Jalen Brunson is a facilitator of the offense in a half-court setting similar to Luka. You saw it in the playoffs when he was with Dallas, how similarly their games worked and how the team was able to still thrive offensively because of that the six fast break points although the sheer low number surprised me the fact that it was low at all was not the surprising part dallas however without luca being on the floor they took full advantage full advantage of the speed that they had and so now with 25, oh, excuse me, not 25, with 15 or more fast break points in a game this season, Dallas is 14 and 5. And Jason Kidd has said it before. One of the points of contention is to continually speed up the pace because when you do, you get easier buckets. It's a lot easier to score. It's a lot easier to win, to win games. So just under 15 is the average in the NBA. It's about 14. So when you hit 15 or more, Dallas is really successful. They win almost 75% of their games. Points off turnovers, Dallas had a plus 10 margin, 23 to 13. So they did find a way to outscore New York in the miscellaneous categories to overcome the paint deficit. Now, this was a clutch game because the Dallas Mavericks know how to blow 20-point leads. They didn't actually blow this lead. It was it was considered a wire-to-wire win, but it didn't have to be. A clutch game. So let's just go through what happened here. This ended up being the Mavs' third straight clutch win. They now have a 13 and 5 clutch record, which ties the fourth best clutch start in franchise history. Behind only 2006 2007, where they went 15 and 3 in their first 18 clutch games, the season that Dirk won MVP and the Mavs won a uh, franchise record 67 games. Then 2010 and 2011 and 2005, 2006, where they went 14 and four in both of those seasons. Now those were the two years that the Mavs made the NBA finals. The, the 
earlier of which they lost to Miami in, in six games, and the latter of which they beat Miami in six games. This 13-5 and clutch record is the second best win percentage in the NBA at 72.2%. It ties the third most clutch wins in the NBA and ties the second fewest clutch losses in the NBA. In the clutch, the Mavs score 7.6 points per game, 40% from the floor. Not great. 30.5% from three. That's 23rd, 22nd, and 15th in the NBA, respectively. 23rd in scoring, 7.6. 22nd from the floor, 40%. 15th from three, 30.5%. However, how they can shoot worse in the clutch than they do throughout the rest of the game and still win a lot of these games is because of their defense. Their defensive rating in the clutch is 106.7. That's ninth in the NBA. When you look at the entirety of the season, their defensive rating, the Mavs defensive rating is 115.9. That's 18th in the NBA. So it goes to show you, you play a little defense, make a lot of your free throws. As I said, they are the best free throw shooting team in the clutch. You can win a lot of the games that you lost from the previous season, and it's starting to take effect, and I think this will show throughout the rest of the season, especially when everybody comes back healthy. And the Mavs can make a case for being in the top six, although they got to jostle with some teams that are close to them in the standings, such as the New Orleans Pelicans. They've got two matchups with the Pels, and this will be the last two games against the Pelicans for the rest of the season on Saturday and on Monday. That will end their homestand, and as of right now, they are 4-1 and one in their first five games on the homestand. If they can finish 6-1, and one, as Skin said on the broadcast, it's a great, or at least as Skin said and as Brian Demare said on the broadcast, if you can go 6-1 and one on this homestand, then that will help elevate all of the goals and aspirations that you have from this point on, especially going into the all-star break and then that final push into the playoffs. Now let's transition to the Pels and the Thunder because they have had some interesting weeks. That's next. All right, we're going to start with the Pelicans of New Orleans. Against the Clippers, the Pels' wings got clipped. The Clippers defeated the Pelicans 119-95. to And Tyron Lue's plan was to double-team Brandon Ingram so much that he didn't shoot the ball. So what ended up happening, Brandon Ingram got double-teamed, and he only attempted nine shots, which is really low for a prolific score of his nature. Zion, B.I., and... C.J. McCollum each scored only 12 points, while Jonas and Jordan Hawkins, the rookie, led New Orleans with 13 points each. So how do you bounce back from a loss like that, especially against a team that is hot, that is slated to be one of the top four teams in the West that is potentially in title contention given health? 
you basically flip it and apply it to the next team. So the Pelicans defeated the Sacramento Kings on the road, 133 to 100, with some suffocating Pelicans defense. De'Aaron Fox scored three points. I'm not kidding. He scored three points. No Sacramento King scored more than 17. The Pels shooting in this game was also lights out. They shot 50 of 82, 61% from the floor. Shooting 31 of 47, 66% from two. And also 24 of 37, which is 64.9% in the paint. From three, the Pels shot 19 of 35, 54.3%. 17 of those 19 threes were assisted. The first 11 straight were assisted. And then from the free throw line, the Pels were efficient, shooting 14 of 16, 87.5%. In the miscellaneous margins, the Pelicans had a 15-11 advantage in second chance points. And on top of that, I'll even give you a little nugget here. New Orleans shot 6 of 11, 54.5% when attempting second chance field goals, when shooting second chance field goals. And then they had a 19 to 6 advantage in fast break points. So now, New Orleans is 4-0 this season against Sacramento. They do have a fifth game. This happened because of the in-season tournament, the way that that bracket ended up finalizing. Milwaukee and Indiana have the same situation where they also have to play five games in the season. So this is a first of its kind, but as of right now, to be 4-0 against Sacramento, Willie, Willie said in his presser that they seem to match up, the Pelicans seem to match up well against the Kings. And it's been showing all season long. But this was one of the best wins I've ever seen from the Pelicans. Now, they have to deal with the Golden State Warriors in San Francisco. But in this game, it was more of the same. Second verse, same as the first. The Pelicans defeated the Warriors 141 to 105. This is the second straight game where the home fans booed their team. And my, my producer for the Kings game was telling me, the Kings still attempted a lot of field goals. It's not like they were giving up turnovers. They even outscored New Orleans in points off turnovers. They were just missing their shots. So it was somewhat bad luck, but a lot of really good defense against New Orleans. The Warriors, they just got drubbed. This was the seventh straight road victory for the Pelicans, and this does not include the loss to the Lakers in Las Vegas. For some reason, the NBA decided that they were going to count the games in Vegas as a home game or a road game based on where you were in the seating. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I don't know of any broadcaster who would look at that and say, yeah, that's a road game or that's a home game. Even, even for the Lakers who had Lakers fans traveling to Vegas, that doesn't make sense statistically. So we're not going with that. So the Pels have seven straight true road victories and it ties their second longest road winning streak in franchise history. They showed even more suffocating defense. Stephen Curry, yes, the greatest shooter God ever created. 15 points. No Warrior starter scored more than Steph. The, player, the players that did score more than Steph came off the bench. 
Moses Moody led the team with 21 points, followed by Trace Jackson Davis with 19. The Pelicans had eight double-digit scores. I love, I love talking about this. This is the first game this season where they had eight or more double-digit scores. And their records, when we split, as you go down, when you have when the Pels have seven or more, they're five and one. When they have six or more, they're ten and five. And when they have five or more double-digit scores, they're 18 and 10. For the Mavs last year, I, I started recording this in a report on Sport Radar to just keep track of how the Mavs were doing when they had double-digit scores of that caliber. And it started to show more in the winning column once they hit six. Generally, when you have five or more, you're doing a great job and you can win more games. For the Pelicans, it's really starting to show in these splits. And their offense is styled more to have games like this where you have so many double-digit scores. Like, if you have five or more, the, the Pels have 28 games where they have five or more double-digit scores. It's more of their offensive style to do it this way rather than have all the scoring come from one guy, such as a Zion Williamson. Now, the Pels shooting in this game. They shot 54 of 94, which is 57.4%. 35 of 54, 64.8% from two. And then in the paint, they shot 32 of 45, which is 71.1%. From three, the Pels shot 19 of 40, 47.5%. That's now... uh, that's back-to-back games with 19 or more threes. And it's also back-to-back games with their first 11 threes coming off assists. So again, that has been their offensive style, sharing the ball, moving the ball, forcing the defense to move faster than the ball, which is physically impossible, and make you pay from either behind the arc or wherever you can find an opening to the lane through the lane, to the basket. Now, let's look at the miscellaneous margins. Bench points for the Pels. Now, this game was a blowout, so this kind of makes sense. They scored a season-high 62 bench points. In the paint, they had a 64-48 to advantage. On the fast break, they had a 14-6 to advantage. And then in points off turnovers, the Pelicans had a 24-15 to scoring advantage. The Pels also only gave up 11 turnovers. That's actually not normal for a team that does cough up the ball a lot. It ties their sixth fewest turnovers this season. So shout out to the Pelicans for not giving the Warriors life. Even though the Warriors probably would have just thrown it away anyway, as they're one of the worst teams in turnovers. The rebound differential this season. For the Pelicans, they're 17-5 and when out-rebounding opponents, which ties the third most wins in the NBA. So it, it's a point of emphasis that if you can out-rebound your opponents, it's really across any team, you're going to win more games. You don't want to be on the bottom end of that one. And then I want to give a shout-out to Herb Jones. Yes, Herb Jones. Shooting a career-best 36.7% from three this season. And in his last six games, shout-out Aaron Hardigan for being one of the first people to talk about this. Her and Madison Hawk, and of course our producer. 12.2 points per game in his last six games. 52% from the floor. 57.7% from three. He's shooting lights out from outside, and it is only elevating the Pelicans' offense because, man, they've scored a lot of points in their last three games. I believe it's been about 141, which leads to the NBA. It's outrageous. 
So they visit the, the Nuggets Friday. By the time you see or hear this episode, that game will have already tipped off and most likely will be over. But they've got to deal with the defending champs on the road, in the mile high. And then after that, they play a back-to-back. They play Friday against the Nuggets and then Saturday against the Mavericks in Dallas. So we don't know how that game is going to go. But they got, like I said for the Mavs, two matchups for the Pels in Dallas, the last two against the Mavericks for the rest of the season. And this will be pivotal for the tiebreaker because they both are, they, the season is currently one-to-one. Dallas has one win, New Orleans has one win. Now let's transition to the Oklahoma City Thunder. They had lost two straight games for only the second time this season. So similar to Minnesota, they don't really lose consecutive games like that. They had previously won five straight before losing those two and have since won three straight. So I don't want to make it seem like they've fallen off a cliff. They're doing just fine. However, a point of contention that has come up over and over and over again, despite winning games, is how they allow their opponent to rebound offensively. OKC allows 13.2 offensive rebounds per game this season. That's 30th in the NBA, meaning last. And then if you look at second chance points, they score only 10.1 second chance points per game, which is 29th in the NBA. Only eight teams in NBA history have made the playoffs while scoring 10 and a half or fewer second chance points per game since the play-by-play era started in 1996-1997. So I am going to provide some historical context here when it comes to not only their second-chance points scored, but also the percentage of their total points coming from the second-chance category. They give up 15.7 second-chance points per game, which is 27th in the NBA. There are only two teams in the bottom five in both second-chance points scored and second-chance points allowed. That's OKC and the Washington Wizards. Yes, the the lowly Washington Wizards. The NBA average this season in second chance points is 14.1. The NBA average in percentage of points coming from second chance is 12.1%. Remember that percentage because OKC only has 8.3% of their points come from second chance. That's the lowest in the NBA. No team in NBA history in the play-by-play era has made the playoffs scoring fewer than 9.4% of points from the second chance category. No team scoring less than 10.1% of their points from second chance has ever won the NBA championship. So this team has surprised everyone by being in the top two in the West by, by after last night, after Thursday night, tying for first in the West with Minnesota. They have a legitimate shot at reaching the NBA Finals considering how well they have played up until this point and we'll see how they play in a series. They haven't had that experience yet, but once they do, you can see how far they can go. But this statistic alone is going to be very difficult to overcome considering very few teams have done it before. And so it has to be a point that the Thunder address, but it's going to be difficult when your main big is Chet Holmgren and he's out at the three-point line, right? With the Spurs, Victor Wimbanyama can be either inside or outside, but you also have Zach Collins. Now, it doesn't really do well for their second-chance points and opponent second-chance points. They're still bottom six in both of those categories, 
but they allow fewer offensive rebounds, which if you look at it defensively, probably means that they let they they let their opponents score as soon as they get their first offensive rebound, whereas the Thunder make you work for it. That can be that can possibly be what the tape is suggesting. But the stats are showing that OKC's given up way too many second chance points, way too many offensive rebounds per game. So that's something to keep in mind. Maybe the Thunder make a move. It's not really their MO. But that deficiency needs to get addressed in order for them to really make a run. The Thunder can't Thunder just can't ignore it. It, you just can't ignore that. That's too many rebounds that you're giving up. And you can really blow out teams instead of getting close in games, especially against uh, against Miami. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. The first half of the Nets game showed Brooklyn outscoring OKC 75-47. to 47. The Thunder shot 2 of 15 from 3. That's 13%. It's the seventh half this season making two or fewer threes. Despite that, they scored 34 paint points on 17 of 27, shooting from two. 63%. They also had only... Not only. They didn't score a single second chance point in that game. So everything I had just mentioned, yeah, it really showed itself against Brooklyn. They allowed 17 second chance points on eight... Brooklyn offensive rebounds. That that's too many on either side. In the second half, they outscored Brooklyn 68 to 49. They they kind of got it close. OKC outscored outshot Brooklyn 19 of 26 from the floor to 11 of 26 from the floor. So 62% to 34%. From three, they outshot Brooklyn, 7 of 16, 44%, to Brooklyn's 4 of 18, 22%. And then from the free throw line, this is where they had a disadvantage. OKC only shot 9 of 15, which was 60%, while Brooklyn shot 15 of 18, 83.3% from the free throw line. OKC has had a bit of a struggle converting their free throws as of late, but they are still one of the best teams in free throw shooting across the entirety of the game. They might still be in first in free throw shooting. But you don't want it to hold on forever. You eventually want to clean that up and then convert your free throws. Now, in the miscellaneous categories, they outscored Brooklyn 30 to 20 in the paint, 9 to 2 in fast break points, 13 to nothing in points off turnovers, all in the second half. So they really started to wake up at that point. Now, on the offensive rebounding side, OKC only had seven. Brooklyn had 20. And in the second half, OKC only had four. Brooklyn had 12. Remember, Brooklyn had eight in the first half. 12 in the second half. So despite how OKC was coming back, they let Brooklyn take this game away. And then second chance points, OKC only scored seven. While Brooklyn scored 30. 30. Second chance points. That's the most by a Thunder opponent this season. So, again, you can't just keep letting that happen. However, they did not lose after that game. They won three straight. And in those three games, let's look at the Thunder's big three again. SGA, Chet, J-Dub. 
So in these three games, these last three games, Shea has scored 30.3 points per game on 67.3% shooting from the floor, 45.5% from three, which is great for him, 87% from the free throw line, and 5.7 assists per game and 1.3 steals per game. He now has 27 games this season with 30 or more points, which leads the league. And remember last year, he led the league with 45 such 30-point games. Chet Holmgren has scored 24.3 points per game in these last three games, shooting 71.4% from the floor, 46.2% from three, while adding 5.7 rebounds and 1.7 blocks per game. He still has nine games this season with four or more blocks in a single game, which ties the fourth most in the NBA with Anthony Davis of the Los Angeles Lakers. It's also the second most among rookies behind Victor Wembanyama. J-Dub, Jalen Williams, is scoring 20.3 points per game in his last three games, shooting 68.4% from the floor, 60% from three, 85.7% from the stripe, while adding 7.7 rebounds, 8.7 assists, and one steal per game. He scored in double figures in all but one game he's played this season. Still, yes, that stat has not changed. And he has four 20-plus point games in his last five. That fifth game where he didn't score 20, he scored 19. So the Thunder are back in action. They're, they're really doing well, and the big three are leading the way with how well they've played. I would like Chet to see him improve his free throw shooting as he has shot well all season long. It's just that this three-game stretch, he hasn't done particularly well. So for him, he can he can get back in there, get back to the line, convert more of those free throws. They'll be fine. The rest of the team in these last three games, from January 8th to January 11th, the Thunder went 3-0, which is the best record, most wins in the NBA in that span. They have scored 134.3 points per game. That is third in the NBA. That offense is on fire. 58.4% shooting from the floor. That's first in the NBA. From three, they're shooting 43.8%, which is fifth in the NBA. They have 38 assists per game. That is not hyperbole. 38 assists per game. That also leads the NBA. They also score 66.7 points in the paint per game. That's third in the NBA. And in their last five games, they've scored 60 or more paint points. In two of the last three, they've hit 70. Now, the rookie matchup between Chet Holmgren and Jaime Jaquez Jr., Chet Holmgren scored 23 points on 10 of 15 shooting, which is 66.7%, nine rebounds, two assists, three blocks, while Jaime Jaquez Jr. scored 21 points, six of nine shooting from the floor and from the free throw line. Three of five from three with five rebounds and two assists. So a great matchup between them two. They're going to play again in early March, I believe, in Oklahoma City. So the way that this Rookie of the Year race is going to go, it, it could fall into Wembenyama's favor. It's too early to tell. But Chet Holmgren, of course, has been lock and step with that guy. Jaime Jaquez Jr. has elevated himself to third considering his availability and the way that he's helped this Miami Heat team throughout this rise, especially how he played on Christmas Day. And then the game that I'm, pro that I'm really not going to talk about very much, the Thunder trounced the Trailblazers. 
They beat Portland by 62. In case you missed it, that ties the fifth largest margin in NBA history. Ever. That's the largest win in franchise history. I don't think I have any more to say about that game. There's no reason. All right, so next up for OKC, they host Orlando before they make a road trip to LA to face the Lakers and the Clippers and then eventually the Jazz. That's what we'll be talking about next week. But we're going to transition to those upcoming matchups across the NBA and take a look at all-star voting for round two. Now let's take a look at all-star voting results for round two. The fan results have returned as of January 11th, Thursday of this week. LeBron and Giannis lead their respective conferences in the second fan returns of NBA all-star voting. So let's look at the Western Conference front court. First, LeBron James, followed by Nikola Jokic, who has now usurped Kevin Durant, who's followed by Anthony Davis and then Kawhi Leonard, Alperen Sengun, Paul George, Victor Wimbanyama, Chet Holmgren, and Carl Anthony Towns. The guards in the West are led by Luka Doncic, then Stephen Curry, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, James Harden, Kyrie Irving, Anthony Edwards, John Morant, De'Aaron Fox, Devin Booker, and Klay Thompson. Now again, all this is going to change as injuries have played a part, but this is the return of the second fan voting, the second round of fan voting. Let's look at the Eastern Conference front court, led by Giannis Antetokounmpo, who leads all East players, followed by Joel Embiid, then Jason Tatum, Jimmy Butler, Jalen Brown, Kristaps Porzingis, Bam Adebayo, Julius Randle, Paolo Bencaro, and Mikhail Bridges. And then the guards are led by Tyrese Halliburton, Trey Young, Damian Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, Tyrese Maxey, Jalen Brunson, Derek White, LaMelo Ball, Drew Holiday, and DeMar DeRozan. All right. So that's All-Star Voting Round 2. Remember, you can continually go on NBA.com every day and vote for your favorite All-Stars. Again, I'm not asked by the NBA to say this. I'm just reminding you, as I should remind myself and vote for my favorite players. You should as well. Now, about Tyrese Halliburton leading the guards, unfortunately for him and for guys like Ja Morant, they are dealing with some injuries, right? I already said that Ja is out for the season with that right labrum tear. Tyrese Halliburton did the splits slipping on his way to the basket, and uh, that looked very uncomfortable. So he's going to be out a little while. I, I hope he gets better because uh, I've pulled hamstrings before, and that's not fun. The Pacers are... I'm... I'm not one to project how well the Pacers are going to do because I don't really watch the Pacers. But what we do know about them is that offensively, they're a juggernaut. Defensively, they're porous. And without Tyrese Halliburton leading the way with, considering he averages, I believe, 12 and a half assists per game, without anyone being able to play make the way that he does, it's going to be difficult for them to replicate that kind of offense and have so much tension go to where Tyrese goes and then kick out 
and shoot threes the way that Indiana does. However, Rick Carlisle is a fantastic coach. I would know. I've watched him coach throughout his, his entire Dallas tenure. So they'll figure it out at least for however long Tyrese Halliburton is going to be gone. Next, let's talk about Kawhi and Eric Spolstra because they signed new deals. So Kawhi Leonard signed an extension with the Los Angeles Clippers. And it is worth, according to the Athletics' Sham Sharania, three years, $152.4 million. And that will go through the 2026-2027 season. So the Clippers that we've seen throughout all these years will continue to be the Clippers that we see. So it looks like it's going to be a continued project of having Kawhi Leonard, most likely Paul George, We'll see how long they can hang on to James Harden and to uh, Russell Westbrook. But this team is now opening their title window again. And if they don't get another one, if they don't get one at all, while Kawhi Leonard is a Clipper, man, I don't know. I, I really don't know what to do with that franchise. But good for the Clippers to have their superstar back in the fold and for him to be playing as well as he is and as healthily as he is right now. Eric Spolstra signed an extension with the Miami Heat, and it is a long-term contract extension. So the, the details are brought to us by ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, and the deal's worth more than $120 million across eight years. So Eric Spolstra, we all know, longtime Miami Heat coach, the second longest tenured coach behind Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs, He's been with that team for 16 seasons as the head coach, 29 seasons overall since he started as a, as a guy in the video department. So shout out to him considering what he's going through right now. The, the Heat have shown consistency. They've shown loyalty and the way that they, the way that they play, you can only respect. So big shout out to Mickey Harrison and the, and the entire Miami Heat ownership, Pat Riley and Spolstra. Just much respect for where, for what that team has done over the last God knows how many years. All right. Other news around the league. I didn't know this until I was building, until I finished this rundown a few hours ago. Victor Wimbanyama posts the second fastest ever triple-double. He did it in 21 minutes. And it happened to be his first career triple-double. So, <laughs> Russell Westbrook ended up being the only one who could record a triple-double faster than Victor Wembanyama. He did it in 20 minutes. And in this game against the Detroit Pistons, Victor had 16 points, 12 rebounds, and 10 assists. The Spurs ended up beating the Pistons 130-108. to So, it's, it's just outrageous what this kid can do how he was able to get a triple-double this early. I know the Pistons are not great. They're the, forget not great. They're the worst in the NBA. But to stu- it's still very difficult to get a triple-double against starters this early in your career. He's still a rookie, and he did it in 21 minutes. What? What are we watching? What is this? I, I, I don't understand it. I really can't wait for him and Chet to actually have a ridiculous game. They should be meeting up late January and late February 
I hope those matchups go better than their previous one. Now, next week, in, next, in the next episode, we will recap the rest of week 12, especially those matchups between the Mavs and the Pels. And then, before we go, before I talk about the tip-offs for the rest of the week, let me just mention, the Dallas Cowboys won the NFC East, and they will now host the Green Bay Packers in the first round of the NFL playoffs. This team can finally make an NFC championship run and meet the San Francisco 49ers, but I'm not holding my breath just yet because every time they're expected to get that far, they don't get that far. I have literally never been alive for a Dallas Cowboys team that has made it farther than the divisional round. I just haven't, so I'm going to hold my breath. But this is the year to do it if there's any year to do it. So let's step up, Dallas. And shout out uh, Jimmy Johnson for being in the Cowboys ring of honor jerry jones for letting him be in the ring of honor but that is another story for another day now let's get into the tip-off schedule for the nba throughout the rest of the week i am going to bleed into next week because of the holiday on monday so the games that have happened friday night again you will probably not hear or see this by the time these games have tipped off they might already be final the rockets and the pistons will have played 7.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on ESPN, followed by the Charlotte Hornets, led by the number two overall pick, Brandon Miller, and the San Antonio Spurs, led by number one overall pick, Victor Wembanyama, at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on ESPN. I will definitely watch that as soon as I get done with this. Saturday, January 13th, will be the Golden State Warriors and the Milwaukee Bucks at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central on NBA TV. Then on Monday, January 15th, it will be MLK Day, which also happens to be his 95th birthday. So if there were any, if there were any time to celebrate Martin Luther King more than we already do, this is one of those years to do it, to celebrate his legacy and what he has meant to the entire black community across America. On that day, The Houston Rockets will play the Philadelphia 76ers at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Central on NBA TV. And then the Spurs, San Antonio Spurs, and the Atlanta Hawks, which, remember, if you don't know already, Atlanta is the birthplace of Dr. King. That game will be at 3.30 p.m. Eastern, 2.30 p.m. Central on TNT, followed by the Golden State Warriors visiting the Memphis Grizzlies, which is the place where Dr. King was assassinated Everyone knows this by now, but in case you didn't, those two locations, Atlanta and Memphis, have much historical significance for Dr. King. That game will be played 6 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Central on TNT. And then the Oklahoma City Thunder will play the Los Angeles Lakers at 10.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 p.m. Central on NBA TV, as well as Bally Sports Oklahoma and Spectrum Sportsnet. Now for local television, again, Friday's games, These will have already happened by the time you see or hear this. The Pelicans, the New Orleans Pelicans, will visit the Denver Nuggets at 9-8 Central on Fox 8 and Altitude Sports. There there has now been an agreement where some of the games that normally air on Valley Sports will air over the air. This is for the Pelicans and the Thunder. 
So Fox 8, Gray Sports Television, if you're in the area that gets that region, you can watch that game on your over-the-air channel and then keep up with the over-the-air schedule for games that are not going to be on Valley Sports New Orleans. Saturday, January 13th, the Orlando Magic will play the Oklahoma City Thunder at 8-7 Central on Valley Sports Florida and Valley Sports Oklahoma, followed by the Pelicans and the Mavericks at 8-30, 7-30 Central in those respective regions on Valley Sports New Orleans and Valley Sports Southwest. Then on MLK Day, Monday, January 15th, the Pelicans will play their second game against the Mavericks at 2.30, 1.30 Central, PM Central, on Valley Sports New Orleans and Valley Sports Southwest. So on MLK Day, make sure you go out and celebrate the legacy of Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And throughout the holiday as a whole, and then even on days, not un- unlike Monday, continue to live out his legacy as it was very important to those of us in the community, those of us who've grown up as black Americans and understand why the NBA really wants to make a push continually make a push for this holiday and for black history as we eventually get into black history month in February. So I want to give all of you my thanks, especially on the video from last week. You guys have blown that one up a little bit. Uh, that has performed better than any video I've released. Continue listening, watching these episodes. Tell your friends, tell your family. If they're into things like this, stats, all that stuff. Can't thank you enough for the support you've provided me up through this point. That'll do it for me. This has been The Control Room. I am your host, Esrael Johannes, signing off.